sisters in recovery. I'm Christopher Heimerman. This is 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host, but I am not a licensed healthcare professional, not a counselor or a psychiatrist. No, no, I'm a guy with 704 days of sobriety and a guy with the gumption to put his story out there. Our special guest for this podcast, Danielle Maines, also has the gumption to put her story out there. She and her husband, Ryan Maines, are running a fundraiser called Run For Our Lives. Ryan's an Iraq War veteran and a 14-year veteran of the Woodstock Fire Department here in Northern Illinois. And he's a survivor of severe trauma. And of course, then in turn, Danielle and their children are survivors of trauma. We are going to talk about the partner's role in helping people get through addiction and severe mental illness. And we're going to talk about steps that they are going to be taking in order to confront this. Folks, I'm looking out the window and it's a beautiful day for a run. Let's lace them up for 40,000 Steps Radio. Let's get it. Ryan Maines is a born healer. He was a combat medic in the Iraq war. He comes home stateside, becomes a firefighter, does that for 14 years. And in doing so, here's the thing about being a healer and being in his line of work is you see some stuff, man. When you're pulling, you know, bodies from the sites where IEDs go off, when you're the first person arriving at a car crash scene, When you're trying to operate on somebody while their families are beside themselves and you hear the screams, that is trauma that I cannot fathom. So Ryan, our stories dovetail a little bit in that it was spring of 2019 when Ryan finally broke down and went into inpatient treatment. But what about Danielle? You know, what about the kids? You know, the people who have to uh, you know, keep trying to go about business as usual, right? And it's not just that. I mean, what about the years leading up to that as Danielle watched the man who she fell in love with? You know, she saw him withdrawing and kind of fading away. Well, folks, in a perfect world, Ryan would still be on the job and none of the Mainses would have had to have endured what they've gone through. Because in a perfect world, he would have been provided the supports and the intervention to be the healer he was born to be. Unfortunately, that's not the case in a lot of lines of work, including in the, uh, including in the firehouse where toxic masculinity runs rampant, where guys are told to suck it up where mental illness is frowned upon, if not ignored altogether, and where guys are just, you know, pushed back out into action without, you know, proper opportunities to process it and and to heal. So the Mainses are taking the bull by the horns. This is the second year that they've had their fundraiser run for our lives. 
on May 22nd, Ryan is going to run a 115K. That's a K for every firefighter who took his own life in 2019. So they're raising a lot of funds that way. They had a virtual run where people who signed up were given like two and a half months to accomplish what Ryan is going to do in one day. And yeah, last year they raised like 20 some thousand dollars. I mean, they raised a lot of money and that is going to create more opportunities, more access to mental health care for firefighters in distress. I was certainly in distress, like I mentioned, you know, at the tail end of the winter in the spring of 2019. So I need to take a moment to explain how I got help. And that was at Gateway Foundation here in Northern Illinois. If drugs or alcohol are starting to take over your life, it's time to get honest with yourself and get help. These days, many people are at home or out of work, and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with stress and anxiety is stronger than ever before, right? Stop using now before it's too late. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient as well as virtual programs so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your own home. Don't wait to get help that you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free confidential consultation or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. All right, so thanks to Gateway, I got some help. And thanks to the Mainses, some firefighters are going to get life-saving help. This was humbling to talk with Danielle. She's a straight shooter. She doesn't pull any punches, and she's brilliant. And she is a caretaker extraordinaire for the way that she was able to keep you know, keep the train on the rails while Ryan was getting the help he so desperately needed. I hope you guys enjoy this chat as much as I did. This is me chatting with my very good friend, Danielle Maines. Everybody else who I've had in here has had audio issues or, or headphone issues or something. So you, uh, you get a gold star. You did it. <laughs> We've made special accommodations. The uh, the girls took their bath early <laughs> because usually they would be directly across the hall in the tub right now. And I cannot trust them to be quiet. So they're downstairs and watching a movie. So I am in my happy place and I'm so excited to chat with you. On a scale from one to 10, like how pants on head crazy are things right now with grad school, work, getting ready for run for our lives. Like what's your world like right now? Um, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, work is getting into the summer programs at the park district. So we're actually running a lot of in-person programs. So they're needing me to come into the office more, um, which has been nice because it's time for me to focus more on that. But the kids are in person five days a week too and school, which has also been really nice. And Ryan's doing a lot more longer running. So he's been away a lot more um, just on some of those longer runs. And it takes a lot of time, um, but he's... It does. Yeah. And I mean, that, that, puts, that puts a lot of burden on you, which I feel like that's going to be kind of a running theme over, the, over our conversation, right? Yeah, it's, it's a lot on on my plate that I'm only now starting to go through kind of shifting off of my plate. 
because it's like I can only carry it for so long. And I I get burnout very easily, but when it comes to um you know, your family, you, you want to do it. Um, but it's easy to get, um, a little burnout by everything else. So I took the grad school as kind of my time, um, to really delve into something I love to do, which is learning and, Mm -hmm. um, learn about how to make our relationship better and how to help other, other people make their relationships better. When did you start in on grad school? Um, let's see. I started in, it was August. Yeah, just this, just this past August. Okay, because I've been wondering, you know, it's the chicken and the egg thing. Yeah. Because given what you guys have been put through, because you're, you're getting your master's in like mental health counseling, correct? Yeah, clinical mental health counseling. So, okay, what came first? The, the desire to do this or seeing the the mental health impact of 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 just years of what Ryan went through and and in turn what you went through i think um in living through it i found that there weren't enough counselors that um specifically focused on first responders and that knew what first responders would go through on a daily basis and there definitely weren't many counselors that knew what spouses go through, um, partners go through when dealing with living with the first responder um, and families as a whole. So I had started grad school um, back when I was working for NIU. So I started in the communications, um, getting my master's in communications to go on there and teach photojournalism. And um, once this all happened, I left NIU and took a job closer to home and just living through, going through the counseling process, being in counseling myself, Ryan being in counseling and just knowing that's such a big deal in our lives. It just, it seemed like a natural transition to learn more about it. Right on. All right. So let's talk about, you know, when you say, you know, going through it, living through it, let's talk about it. Um, Ryan, an Iraq war veteran, 14 years with the Woodstock Fire Department. When did you guys meet and how did you meet? We met back in, let's see, it was February. No, 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 it was December of 2006. So I was I was hired um, at the Northwest Herald, which is a Shaw Media newspaper in Crystal Lake, right out of college. Um, so I moved from Valparaiso, Indiana straight to Woodstock, Illinois, and started my job there. So I I didn't know anybody. Um, I didn't know anybody in town. I was a video journalist for them. And basically, they let me do whatever I wanted video wise. So I decided to make a video of different people in the community um, saying verses of was twas the night before Christmas. And this was right right before day before Christmas. I would do it, button it up, and then like go home to my parents in Indiana. And so I started at the firehouse in Woodstock because I knew they were on shift early. And that's that's how we met. Um, he asked for my number. I didn't have business cards because I had just started at the Northwest Herald. And uh, so I wrote my name on a piece of paper and and gave him my number, so. So this this was, I'm sorry, you said this is Christmas Eve? Yeah, this is Christmas Eve day. 
And you picked him as one of the, your storytellers, basically. I, I picked someone from the fire department, but the fire department, the Woodstock Fire Rescue District, picked him to be on camera and his friend who was hired at the same time, Mike Brinkman. And so they both they both took turns reading lines. And then, I mean, how long was the dating process? Did you guys figure out pretty quickly that, that you guys were, were the missing pieces for each other, that sort of thing? Yeah, you know, we, we dated... Um, I don't think I called him back until February of 07. Oh, nice. You made so, it work. Good. I did. Yeah. And I called him back in February of 07. And then we were pretty much inseparable ever, ever since then. We were married um, July 17th of 2009. And how old are your kids now? So Jude is nine and Lucy is five. All right. So you meet him. He's... A pretty, he's really young in his career as a firefighter. Yeah, it was first his after his first year on. Yeah, was he discharged from the army like shortly before that? Basically, yeah. So he um, was out of the army for probably he was out in two thousand and three, mm-hmm. and then he went through school um, through ECC there, and they sponsored them to go through the fire academy, and so he was sponsored by Woodstock. And then hired on shortly after, after he got all of his accreditations. So he sees some stuff in Iraq that like no human being should be subjected to. And obviously the day to day working as a firefighter, you know, you see all these cumulative things that add up throughout your courtship, throughout your love story. When did you first start to, uh, did he ever share any of the stuff that he was seeing or, or the stuff that he saw during the war? No, actually, we never spoke about it. The only reason I knew he was a veteran is because he wore army boot, his old army boots on our first date. <laughs> and I remember he has like these long, lanky legs. Did that do anything for it, you? <laughs> it did it because I was like, what is this? <laughs> and his his jeans would rise up. And then when he would walk, they would go back into his boots because they were so tall. He must he have had one them. hell of a personality to win you over them. <laughs> He did. He was funny (laughs) and he was very good looking. He still is, but, um, he was incredibly funny. Yeah. And, um, and I had no, I had no idea. It was something that I never really asked about. Um, I, I knew he was a combat medic every once in a while stories would come out. Um, I realized he would always get kind of down around the month of March, which Mm -hmm. is the anniversary of the, first Iraq invasion that he was on and um, but nothing nothing serious nothing that would have been you know weird like he was a firefighter so he would point out you know and look for the sprinkler systems in restaurants we would go to and if we would check into like a hotel if we were going to a friend's wedding he would ask me where the nearest exit was and could I find it with my eyes closed and you know stuff like that just to keep me safe procedural stuff and safeguard yeah. stuff yeah when do you start seeing that like hindsight's 2020 when do you start to see some red flags when when uh, you know that debonair handsome funny guy when does he start to change a little bit um i think it was really after um when jude was born in um he was born in 2015 in October, and then it was around 2016 when I could see um, his sleep 
started going in weird patterns. I mean, because we had a newborn, yes, but also he wasn't sleeping at work mm -hmm. um, and he wasn't sleeping at home. So it was, it was difficult to get him caught up with sleep. Um, and then just the worries of having a newborn at home. Um, but a lot more, I noticed a lot more of the uh, calls involving children um, hit him much harder. Sure. Um, because, you know, a lot of the guys started at the Woodstock Fire Rescue District at the same time. So they all had young kids. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of thought everybody was going through it the same way. But that's when he started counseling. We started counseling then together um, just so we could work through things. And um, so we we both kind of started counseling. And I went to counseling for the first time. This was a, about when? Uh, Jude was born in 2011, and we had started counseling in 2012. Oh wow! So this this yeah. is this is even farther back. Yeah. Because I mean, fast forwarding ahead for folks who don't know the story, who haven't you know been following the Run for Our Lives fundraiser, it was in what March of 2019 that really everything kind of came to a head, and and Ryan had to. I mean, he went into treatment, correct? Yeah. So fast forwarding, we were, I was noticing that he, we, he was going to counseling. I was going to counseling. He would, um, need to go to counseling more often. And especially when it came to like, after particularly bad calls, um, when he was on shift mm -hmm. and then he was, um, he was calling in the end part of March, um, of 19, he would call off shifts from work. He would say he was sick, but then he wouldn't really get out of bed and he was being really lethargic. I mean, he would, he went from running all the time and mm -hmm. working out all the time. Like that was his space and that's where it, he was the happiest to not wanting to get out of bed. And it, it was, it was terrifying. And your spidey sense is probably tingling. Like something is not right here. Yeah. And ultimately what was it that you did? Did you make a phone call? Yeah, so um, I, our morning routines are very hectic as every family with small children. So I, I get ready for work, I get the kids ready. I, um, and this is usually without him because he's on shift, right? So I get the kids ready, I drop them off at daycare on my way to DeKalb, I drive an hour in the car. And that morning he called off sick and I had this weird feeling about what, just his demeanor, his mood, um, his not sleeping the night before. And I just got really worried that gross pit feeling in your stomach. Um, so I Googled on my phone, um, you know, firefighter, Illinois firefighter help, I think is what I Googled and um, came up with Illinois firefighter peer support. So I called the number, um, it said it was four firefighters needing help from other firefighters so i was like okay i mm -hmm. think this is safe because at the time i'm thinking like well i don't want to go to his fire department because i don't know like i've heard stories about people being like blackballed and and their careers taking away from them because they go to the department right away so i didn't know where to turn i was scared right. to talk to anybody else about it in his department so mm -hmm. that's why I felt safer going to Illinois Firefighter Peer Support. 
and I had called them on my way to DeKalb. By the time I got to DeKalb, somebody had called me back. We were matched up with um, Jack Berry. He's a retired firefighter out of McHenry. And so I was able to talk to Jack and it just kind of poured out of me. Like I was just sitting in my car, you know, right at NIU looking at the music building and I was just sobbing and just, and you know, he said, it's, it's okay. It's this, this happens and this happens to a lot of us. And you know, this, this is not unusual. Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. It's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. If you're loaded, it's going to run you 80 bucks. That's the max. If you're a veteran and NIU student or unemployed, you're going to get a break. My friend Ron Parch and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email DUIBHS at gmail.com. And so um, I was able to get Ryan on the phone with Jack, and, you know, Jack was talking a lot to Ryan. Ryan was just listening on the phone um, for the 50 to an hour you know, it takes me to get home from DeKalb. And then we were able to, you know, I was able to sit down and talk to him about him really needing to go somewhere to get help and really kind of focus on taking care of himself. What was that next step? Where did he have to go? So um, I researched a lot of places there. You know, I mean, being a former journalist, when I get to something I don't know, I just I just research, you know, right. at all. So I'm taking notes. I'm calling tons of places. There were a certain number of places that he would have been allowed to go because he was a veteran. Mm-hmm. And then there was a certain amount of places he would be allowed to go because he was a firefighter. Um, he didn't want to go anywhere local because he didn't want to run into, you know, some of the people that he had... Um, helped uh, during his career as a firefighter so we we ended up deciding um on the center of excellence which is the um, international the international firefighter union um specialized center that they had actually just opened the i think two years previous so um but it was in maryland wow so we had to book him a flight yeah I had to get him on the phone. He had to answer a bunch of a bunch of questions for intake and kind of get him ready to go. So he flew out of Milwaukee and his dad drove from North Carolina all the way up here overnight to stay with with me and the kids while he was gone. So his dad basically moved in. Yeah. His dad's a retired fire firefighter at a Downers Grove. Mm-hmm. And I just I remember texting him 
that one day and I said, hey, do you have a minute? And now we kind of joke. <laughs> He's like, well, <laughs> I have a, I have a month, <laughs> you know, and he, he's, he, he had no idea. He, you know, and I just had to say, this is what, this is what has been going on. And this is, it has been going on and Ryan needs the help and he's ready to accept the help. What's that like for you in the weeks and months leading up to that as you're just trying to cling to and you're trying to bring back the guy you fell in love with and you're watching him withdraw and slip away from you? You, you know, it's it was a lot of... I had learned, and I'm not a quiet person, and I'm not a... Um, I say what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had found myself not wanting to make loud noises around the house. Um, I found myself walking on eggshells a lot. Um, I found myself quieting the kids down um, to try not to make loud noises when dad's home. Um, There were a lot of things that um, I had kind of adapted to to do around, around when Ryan was home and off of shift. And it kind of all came to a to a head with just you know the the moodiness the irritability the you know not smiling the just discontent but not really like involved with not being present yeah um it was it was all of those things and it was me just trying to figure out what was going on because i mean i had i had no idea i had I had no idea what was going on. So how long, how long was he, uh, how long was he in treatment then? So he was, um, at the center of excellence for 32 days. Okay. Um, so he came back the beginning of May. Okay. Of 2019. Gotcha. Um, and then he comes home. This is why I've been so eager to talk to you. First off, I'm eager to talk to you because I know that you, you don't pull any punches. Like you said, I, (laughs) I love that about you. Talk about the role of when he comes home and, and he's and he's getting better. He's already probably significantly better. But we so often in these situations, we overlook what the partner goes through when in my case, raging alcoholic, in Ryan's case, suffering like severe uh, trauma and PTSD, no longer being the guy you fell in love with. I mean... Are we talking about, you know, resentment and, you know, like, I remember when I was in treatment, like they warned us, like, don't go home and expect anybody to throw a parade for you. Don't expect anybody to throw you a party because those people have been hurt so significantly as well. And talk to me about your perspective on that. Yeah. So when, when he came home, I, um, I was relieved, uh, first off that he was able to get the tools, um, but trying to help him to actually use those tools was a different story because one, I don't know what he did while he was there. Um, We would have sessions together, but it kind of felt like more of a parent teacher conference than like working together. Like, Oh, Ryan's doing really well here. Like, (laughs) see you next week. And I just remember thinking like, okay, you're, you're given all of these tools, like where, where is my 
you know, where's my teaching about how to make you use these tools or, or how to use the tools like I need some tools <laughs> to go through the same. Yeah, it feels like there's a huge gap there. Yeah. And I was still going to counseling as well, but, you know, our counselor didn't know what he went through at the center either. So it was like a, a disconnect. Um, well, I mean, is this breeding resentment at that point at all? It it wasn't because I I was still able to kind of focus on the kids and I was able yeah. to focus on him and I had my plates full already. I had just started a new job. <laughs> there's there's no room for resentment, yeah, right? There was really no room. Um, I knew that I mean I know I knew then, because um, we had talked about it while he was at the center that he just how close he was um to taking his own life. Um, so I felt a lot of gratefulness. I felt a lot of um, peace with him being still with us. Um, yeah. But it also made me terrified to leave him alone. Yeah. And, and that's something that I don't think anybody, like I was terrified to leave the house. How did you deal with that? Um, I called him a lot. I texted him a lot. I... Uh, you know, and then COVID happened and we didn't leave the house. So that was kind of nice. <laughs> Talk about going from one end of the spectrum to the other, right? <laughs> but it was, it was, it was really difficult. I tried to, um, I tried to be mindful. I tried to, um, I really sunk into a caretaker role, which mm-hmm. now I'm, I'm just starting to deal with, um, because it gave me a lot of, um, difficulty i had a lot of difficulty sleeping because i was very um apt to when he would shudder awake and and i would have dreams of i had a very vivid dream about being at his funeral which i i wouldn't sleep for days because i wouldn't want to go back to sleep and it was it was it was very scary i'm really sorry you know for for what you've had to live through like I, I try to express this to Kayla as often as <laughs> as often as I can, just the gratitude that I feel for her and the gratitude that I feel for you. And I really think that I don't know. There's something to be said for the fact that people like you and Kayla have the capacity to handle this stuff. It's 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 crazy. Like Ryan and I are spoiled in that way in that you guys stood by us. So I'm, I'm very grateful that, that you were able to do that. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was a lot of guys at the center that their wives just packed up and left. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't blame them. Right, you know, I, I, right. I really don't um, because I, I realize that it's very difficult to go through. I'm, I'm at a lot of Facebook groups for PTSD support um, systems, which has been super helpful, um, particularly with first responder wives. And, you know, we go on there and vent, but we go on there and also have a lot of problem solving sessions on, okay, well, if this is happening, what do I do? Because it's a very small network of people that, you know, go through this. Yeah. All right. So how, how long after he gets back home 
do, do we get into the pension stuff? Because he ends up having a pension case, you know, because he had left the department, um, his disability, uh, disability pension. So that's at stake. Uh, how soon did that begin after he got home? So he got home in May of 2019, and then um, he went back on light duty. Um, he oh, was wow. excited again uh, to go back to work, you know, and it it was amazing because it was like, I mean, I read some of his um, employment papers when he was getting hired at the Woodstock Fire Rescue, and he's like, this is what I was born to do. And like in his own essays, like, I was born to be a firefighter. This is what I'm supposed to do. And he was excited again. He was excited to go to work. He was excited to see his crews. He was excited to see his friends. I mean, these are people he served with for more than a decade and, you know, pulled pranks with and saved people with and trained with and complained about, you know. But look, I know I, I know that that was his identity and his calling. But I mean, what about you? What about you watching him go back to, you know, a place where he had endured that trauma? That that had to have been terrifying in its own way. Yes, it was. Um, it was. And I asked him to not go right onto the ambulance because it was specifically the medical calls that were really um, bothering him. Uh, medical calls with children. Of course. And a lot of the accident mm -hmm. scenes. And I was I was worried about him going right back into it. So he promised that he would take, you know, um, light duty for a little while. So he had about a week work worth of shifts on light duty. And then he would go to every shift and explain where he was and explain, you know, what had happened and um, the, some of the tools that he was able to gain from the Center of Excellence. And so he shared with every shift and every crew um, those things that he had been through. And um, they let him just drive the truck, which is not being on the ambulance, for I think about three weeks. And then he went back onto the ambulance. And the last four, I think the four shifts after he went back on the ambulance, he got full arrest patients um, where he was working on these patients around around their families and so it was really the reactions from the families and the screams and the you know just i mean they these guys see people at their on their worst days and that's why they're hired they care and i could again during the summer see him kind of in decline yeah see I, i'm not sure that i knew about this part that he actually went back yeah he went back so i mean you've got to be like Deja freaking vu all over again that summer. I mean, how long was he able to stick that out? How long? I'm going to rephrase that. How long were you guys able to stick that out? And, and what brought it to a, to a halt again? Well, um, we celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary in July, um, July 17th. And then we took a trip uh, to Flagstaff in August to get our vows renewed. Um, our 10 year anniversary uh, with a friend who's also a photographer. And I remember um, thinking, okay, a whole week away from all of this. And I kind of got pieces of him back, which was amazing. You know, we got some family portraits taken, you know, during the vow renewal. And I took her family's portraits. And um, when we came back, it really, um, 
it kind of went from this like epic trip celebrating us to right back into it and right back into the sleep deprivation. And this was, um, and it was really in October um, cause he had already started talking about starting run for our lives. So we had already started planning, um, his run and what he wanted to do to raise money for Illinois firefighter peer support. We had already started all this planning back in June. So we had already okay. started talking about it and started assembling a board and, you know, I set up a Facebook page and everything. And so we were already rolling with that and it wasn't until October um, when he met with his counselor and I was in on the counseling session too, where he really actually like for the first time really broke down in her office mm -hmm. and with what he was saying, with what he was going through, she, she told him he wasn't, he wasn't fit for duty. Was was that a relief for you in a way? It was. Yeah. It, it, it was because he it was, this was the counselor that was the EAP for Woodstock Fire Rescue District. This was the counselor that had first diagnosed him with PTSD back mm -hmm. in 2016. And um, this was the counselor that knew him the best. This counselor said it out loud. So there had to have been a certain amount of, thank Christ that this professional who knows him is saying it out loud. Yes. Yeah, it was, it was... Um, it was a relief for me that I wasn't the only one saying like something, something isn't working here. I don't know what needs to change, but something needs to change or you need more help or you're not using the tools or, and that's the thing. Like some people can endure so much trauma until it becomes too much. And some people never, never deal with this in a, an entire career, an entire 30 year career. People never deal with this. So he resigns. No, um, he takes a leave of absence, uh, FMLA. Okay. And he goes and starts um, intensive outpatient treatment at Alexian Brothers Behavioral Health Center. Okay. Um, over in Hoffman Estates. They don't have a um, particular PTSD group um, but they have an OCD um, and generalized anxiety group that he joins. So he does group counseling, and then he also has a specific counselor, um, and his name was David, who really explored more of the um, extreme exposure therapy when it comes to counseling. He didn't go back after the outpatient then, did he? No. No, so okay. he was an outpatient at Alexian from October to the end of January, around his birthday of, of 2020. So October to January of 2020. My mom came up from Indiana to um, live with us during that time because he was, he was in therapy 40 hours a week. Yeah, and, and so at that point in January, like, did he... Did you guys come to the decision before he completed his outpatient that he wasn't going back? Yeah, so David um, David was really helpful in kind of laying it out for us and um, saying there's a point where he will get to where he'll be able to deal with his past 
demons and all these ghosts and all these things that haunt him. But if he keeps being exposed over and over and over yeah. on a daily basis or a every third day basis to this trauma, there's, you know, there's no way we can we can try to make it better for the things that have already happened and give him the tools to deal with that. But when it comes to going forward, there's just no way he'll be able to deal with new trauma. It's got to be wild for you now in grad school learning about this cumulative trauma and like the rewiring of the brain and these neural pathways. It, it, it's got to be wild that you're learning about this stuff that you already had some glimpse of. And now you're probably getting into more of the science of it now, right? It's it's interesting. It's interesting to see how they worked through narrative therapy with him when it comes to um, telling a story with kind of graphic information and then being able to tell that story again to another stranger, you know, another counselor, and then tell it again to another counselor. And every time you tell the story, it gets a little bit more normalized for you. It gets a little bit less emotional for you. So that is um, the narrative counseling portion of what he went through for exposure therapy. A lot of uh, exposure therapies he went through were um, sitting blindfolded in a hall on a chair and having a make a loud noise behind me sign on the chair so that people would come by and clap really loud, you know, behind him while he was blindfolded or while he was like concentrating on reading or on his phone. So just things to make him, you know, less jumpy, um, less hypervigilant. Wow. Things to help him through that. That's a trip. Yeah. So in January, you know, he doesn't go back. Does that, does that more or less trigger the, uh, the pension case? Well, in, in uh, November, we actually filed for um, his disability pension. Okay. I'm going to ask, are the gloves off at this point? Are we, are we able to talk about this? Because I know that there was. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the pension case is now over. Um, he was, he was granted um, a full duty disability pension. Um, and in the state of Illinois, um, unanimously being granted um, something like that by a district pension board is pretty rare. Because it, it sounds like if he was starting up, you know, run for our lives in June of 2019, the department supported him in that. Oh, yeah. Even when he finished in May of 2020, I mean, they had all the trucks out there for him. They hung the flag on the square. They had everybody there and everybody was there when he left the square and everybody was there when he was on the square. He had different members of his crew running with him throughout the day. They were, they were very, very much um, in support of him. And actually the union, um, Woodstock Union, that he's a part of, those guys actually donated their vacation and sick time because at the time he came back from the center of excellence, he had no time left. Vacation, sick, personal, like nothing. And so um, they donated time then um, to get, actually keep him on the payroll through February. Um, I think it was February 4th of 2020. I mean, now we have to talk about the other side of this in this, in this pension case. And this is where I ask it, you know, if the gloves are off because this stuff gets ugly and this is where we're getting into like the long entrenched way we've always done it with pension boards 
I mean, there was a point where, like, they accused you guys of pulling a publicity stunt with your Facebook posts. Am I right? They tried to, like, weaponize that. So the, the Woodstock Fire Rescue District tried to intervene into the pension case. Um, okay. So usually districts or villages, if the fire department is with a village, um, the village will say that they have some financial obligation to be a party in in the pension case which they do but then they don't then that's why they have the pension board so the woodstock fire rescue district hired a doctor um to basically dispute (laughs) that that ryan had ptsd honestly um he wasn't hired as an independent medical evaluation, um, which is what you're supposed to have. Um, he was hired literally by the district to dispute, you know, what Ryan was going through. And he used, you know, I looked at his report and he used Facebook posts of, you know, anything that they could find, Facebook posts of, you know, what he was trying to do with Run For Our Lives in saying that, you know, if he can run 80 miles, he should be able to go back to work. No! And and it was just like the physical, um, uh, the report, his his report said that um, people with PTSD don't talk about it. Whoa! Um, So he must not have PTSD. He must be malingering and trying to get some sort of weird celebrity status out of um, being this poster child. This is in 2020. Correct. Yeah. And he pulled a report from 1996 that said this. Now I'm studying, you know, crisis and trauma, PTSD, like I'm studying it. Right. And so those reports that came out pre 9-11, like have no basis in being even quoted anymore because it's a totally different world yeah yeah we've come we've come a little ways since then yeah yeah we've come a long (laughs) way with that we've come a long gosh i would hope so (laughs) so um yeah so he stated that ryan was in fact malingering because um he was you know trying to become sort some sort of celebrity and it's funny because when he came back from the center the first things he said were you know, I'm now I'm going to be a explicative poster child. And this is the last thing I wanted to do. Yeah. You know, this is the last thing I wanted to be was be a poster child for PTSD. Yeah. The irony there is, is pretty wild. I want, I want to zero in on this for a second, this, you know, burden of proof, you know, the difference between the burden of proof of, of like proving a, a torn rotator cuff and PTSD because this seems like this is the very like center of all of this is and this is where we get into the toxic masculinity and long ingrained practices of suck it up don't talk about it it doesn't exist it's all in your head you're crazy i mean you guys are going through this pension case and ryan's a sweet guy i haven't gotten to know him that well but i mean you talk about like cognitive dissonance as he's trying to become this sweet guy again and they're effectively you know telling like stopping him yeah yeah it's like driving a wedge between him and his healing 
before all of this, did you have any history with mental illness? No. Okay. Um, I had my first bout with any sort of mental illness was um, going through um, some postpartum after after Jude and Lucy were were born. Because I don't mean to make this about me, but this absolutely pisses me off as somebody who's battled mental illness for 30 years, that that, that is really at the heart of this. So you've got Ryan trying to prove something that nobody wants him to prove. Exactly. Um, and, and everybody doesn't want him to prove that he has PTSD because it's a mirror held up to themselves. Yes. Um, it's, it's a mirror saying that this, this in fact does exist. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what, that's what nobody wants to admit. It's, it's the, you know, it's the best kept secret so much so that we're losing, you know, over a hundred first responders alone, firefighters alone every year to suicide mm -hmm. because nobody's talking about it because nobody, um, Nobody's coming forward and, and saying, this is kind of what this looks like. And, and this is, this is how you get out of being trapped in the trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, because there, there aren't many success stories. People do get financially and emotionally bankrupt over this because there's no way out yeah. of having the trauma heaped on you every day. And I'm going to borrow a, you know, a phrase that I've heard you use. It's, it's the fact that like in terms of like them not wanting to, you know, change the paradigm, change their, their approach, be flexible and provide support and treatment and interventions for these guys. Your phrase is that funerals are more affordable than treatment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Funerals are cheaper than a lifetime of mental health care. Yeah. Or, or the right mental health care, for that matter. And it's unfortunate, but it's very true. And, and when it comes down to it for these, a lot of these villages and a lot of these districts, these men and women are light items on a budget. Yeah. I mean, they really are. And the dollar sign that isn't being placed on that is the value, the quality of life for that firefighter and you and your kids and the rest of Ryan's family and everybody in his orbit. And now we're just talking about Ryan. We're not talking about the tens of thousands of other guys who are in that same spot. You know, they, they, they don't put that line item on their budget. No, exactly. And for as many people as Ryan has shared his story with, I mean, you wouldn't believe just the emails, the messages, the, the DMs that we get like, hey, me too. I'm, I, I can't do this because of this reason, or I'm not in a spot to get help because of this reason. And, um, I mean, so many people are suffering in silence about this because they don't know where to turn and they don't know, they don't know who's safe to talk to about this, um, even in their own department. Yeah. That's, that's where you were. Yeah. It was like, God, I want to confide in his family the fire department, but you have to be thinking like one or two steps ahead, you know, about liability and what's at stake. Let me ask you this, you know, now that you guys have won the pension case and my God, has it set in yet, by the way? It, it hasn't actually. Um, <laughs> Still waiting. Well, I, I have gotten to, and I've been, 
kind of working with my own counselor through this. I've been working through this book, Codependency No More. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. It's an awesome book for caregivers, um, but I love it. Codependent No More uh, by Melody Beatty. And um, I'm in a constant state of hypervigilance, kind of, um, because I'm always waiting for the next shoe to drop. Um, sure. I'm always waiting for the next thing to happen and preparing for the storm. And um, the other day, Ryan kind of brought up, he's like, what if the storm never comes? Or what if we're done with storms for a while? And I'm like, mm -hmm. that would be really nice, but I'm not, I'm not there to drop it yet. Like I'm, yeah. Cause I feel like when I drop my guard, that's when the next thing happens that I'm not prepared for. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the same thing with sobriety where it's like, I'm not going to give alcohol any more power than it deserves, but goddamn, if I don't respect it and that I'm not aware of it and, and respect how powerful it is. And that's where that constant vigilance comes from. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you this. Now that you guys have won the case, even if it hasn't settled in yet, do you guys have any ideas or any plans for how you're going to kind of pump up the volume on the advocacy that you're doing now that, now that you don't have to worry about some of that liability? Yeah, so um, with him running this, you know, next run for our lives in May. Um, yeah, we haven't really he, talked about the running at all, have we? <laughs> <laughs> running's his form of therapy. And even even when, you know, even before all of this happened with him taking time from work, he was always running. Um, he would always run crazy distances. And just that was his outlet. Um, that was his time to think that was his time to just be out in nature like that's what he you know wanted to do so it really helped and it really dovetailed nicely into running this race um, by himself and then with everybody virtually to yeah. really talk about how exercise helps mental health and how you know just mental health matters um and everything like that so i think that's a major um, portion of that. And I think, um, you know, being on podcasts like this and just kind of getting our story out there. Cause after I, after he was at the center and I researched more firewives sharing their story, um, I actually like reached out to them on Facebook and like, we're good friends now. Like, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a really weird sisterhood, um, if you will, about um, just being wives of firefighters with PTSD. Um, some some of them are still working, some of them are not. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just really interesting to connect with people um, through such a personal, you know, battle and struggle like that. I'm looking forward to all of this COVID um, stuff being over through the Senate um, because uh, Senator Hastings um, through Illinois, Illinois Senate is actually bringing up a bill um, with presumptive PTSD um, for first responders uh, for for work comp um, situations. So that would effectively done without the waiting um, when it comes to the financial means while Ryan was going through his Alexian brothers treatment. Mm -hmm. So we would have actually just been getting his salary while he was getting the healing he needed 
And I think that's really something that deters a lot of firefighters um, and police officers from getting the help that they need is because a lot of the times, like their wives don't work, their wives stay home with the kids because shift work is very difficult to find daycare around. Yeah. And so a lot of wives don't don't work. So what are they going to do financially when, you know, their firefighter or um, police officer isn't working at all? They're yeah. going to, you know, counseling for three months. Well, no, I mean, there's the practical aspect of that, of, yes, the feasibility of being able to suffer that financial loss. But then there's the pride aspect of it too. Like these guys are used to being breadwinners. That would be one fewer, you know, blow to the pride that they would have to to go through. Have you guys connected with the Senator at all? Is there going to be any opportunity for Ryan to, to play a role in that bill? Yeah. So they, they um, reached out to us pre COVID um, to be able to testify down on the Senate floor um, when they bring up the bill. So both Ryan and I um, will be testifying and telling our story um, of how this affected us and and how if it was in place, it would have eased his healing. You said it before, you're outspoken. I know that you are an absolute warrior for, for social justice. You got to be pumped to be able to get in there and testify, aren't you? Well, well and that's the thing. It's It's... I feel, I feel so passionately about this and with also studying it gives me that positive focus. Mm -hmm. I have to focus in on doing something positive with this. Um, because I mean, I could, I could sit here and say, what was me, you know, what was Ryan and I for, for years and that could be the end of it. But until we make it better, um, and especially through the laws, because that's really the only way this is going to make anything any better for anybody is closing all of these loopholes mm-hmm. in the state of Illinois about getting help financially or emotionally, you know, or in therapy, closing these loopholes that say, you know, that really prevent people from getting the, the help that they need. Yeah, you're, you're excited. I'm very excited. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm excited to see you guys on May 22nd when um, Ryan's going to run his 115K. Uh, we'll see exactly how many uh, miles I'll get to pace with him. I'm very excited to be part of that. I, I, I'm excited to see you guys then, but I, I can't wait to follow how this goes and uh, and, and see how the, uh, the, the proposed legislation, uh, how, how everything comes together. So... Thank you so much for coming on, but I will say it again. Thank you from the very bottom of my heart for being a champion for Ryan and being in, in doing so being a champion for everybody who has to deal with this sort of thing. Thanks to your wife, Kayla. And I, you know, hope to talk to her about it too, because I'm sure we have very similar stories. Yeah. You guys will be able to share some more stories without a doubt. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get the tribes together. I can't wait. Thanks again for joining me. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Chris. All right, so this is the fun part, right? The Mainses are always going to be wrestling with this on some level. You know, Ryan gets ketamine treatments, they do counseling, they're always going to be keeping his demons at bay. They might be able to, you know, make those demons a little bit smaller, but this isn't the sort of wound that closes and doesn't leave a scar. 
However, how exciting is it that they're going to be able to play a real role in changing legislation so that there might be fewer instances, fewer tales of suffering like Ryan and Danielle and their little tribe had to go through. That is pretty dope indeed. Folks, I appreciate you listening to the show. I appreciate you spreading it around. I appreciate you urging your friends, family, total strangers to go to 40,000steps.wordpress.com and to sign up for our free newsletter. In that newsletter, we always keep you up to speed on who's coming down the pike in terms of guests on the show. Our next guest is going to be Linnea Erickson-Laskowski, who works with our local women's shelter, Safe Passage, here in DeKalb. And she's on the front lines. She's educating in schools. And then, of course, she's working with clients to address the severe, unthinkable amount of trauma that victims suffer. Sexual Abuse Awareness Month, it's ugly, but it is an opportunity to raise this incredibly crucial awareness. I'm eternally grateful for Linnea and the work that she does and for her willingness to come on the show. That will be coming next Tuesday, April 27th. Look forward to it. Guys, as always, I appreciate you. And remember, if it seems like things are falling apart outside of here, right here in this place, we are always coming together. Love you. We'll talk to you soon.